Welcome to the special episode of the Word on World Abuse podcast. Again, we have a special guest, Dr. Christopher Cohn, on uh, this episode to discuss an interesting topic with and related topics that touch on this topic. Now, today we are specifically going to focus on biblical counseling and how worldview impacts how we practice that. So, before we start, I want to introduce Dr. Cohn to those who may not know who he is. He is the president, uh, or, or sorry, the CEO of Agathon uh, and EDU, Agathon EDU, and also serves uh, with Versity and uh, Colorado Biblical University. He holds three doctorates, uh, one PhD in philosophy, one PhD in theology, and another doctorate in um, theology itself. Uh, he's also the author of many, many books, uh, all related to hermeneutics and worldview, uh, and all based on uh, basing worldview from uh, that biblical perspective, which is also the pursuit of this podcast. So, uh, Dr. Cohn, today we want to discuss, uh, we were inspired by a, a lecture you gave on the various approaches to counseling and uh, the various um, methods throughout history that we see and our worldview impacts that. So would you please give us a quick overview if we had to categorize these various approaches uh, in terms of methods of counseling that we see and what is the right method or the biblical method? Well, certainly, and, and and thank you, gentlemen. It's a always a privilege to be able to share this time with you. I'm glad to glad to do that. Yeah. So when when we're talking about counseling, um, we're we're talking about guiding. We're talking about uh, uh, building someone up, and uh, there are there are many different approaches to doing that, um, and and they're they're built on worldview premises. Like, uh, for example, every worldview has an epistemology, a basis of knowledge. Every worldview has uh, an epistem, uh, excuse me, a metaphysic, which would be uh, dealing with what actually exists. And then every worldview will have the so what, uh, or the, the ethics, uh, what we should do about what is and uh, our, our base of knowledge and then of course the, the socio-political aspect what we should do in community so uh, every worldview has to deal with the, and wrestle with those questions and uh, uh, counseling is essentially a segment uh, of uh, uh, of how a person uh, grows and changes uh, so it could fit within a uh, it would fit within the ethics side of things, um, but how we counsel is going to be based on how we view uh, a, the person. What is a person? What is a human being? What 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 uh, what are they uh, made of? Are they simply matter and energy, uh, or are there uh, are there spiritual or non corporeal aspects? Uh, so. Uh, this is why the answers to these questions are, are really explanatory in understanding the major differences in counseling approaches. Uh, 
and certainly to different views on on uh, psychology and understanding the soul and the mind. Um, and, and so that's a putting it within the context of, of worldview. I think there's two issues to deal with. One is uh, the psychology of it all uh, and and what the what the basic understanding of a human being is and uh, how a human being grows and changes. And then the counseling side is actually looking at the techniques and the tools uh, used to uh, put those things into practice. Okay, that's that's a good start. That's a very uh, thorough in terms of understanding our dividing it into those categories of worldview or those building blocks of worldview, really starting with epistemology and then going to to that socio-political and even ethical side. Um, now, mainstream psychology is largely rooted in an atheistic or materialistic worldview, although not all mainstream psychologists are atheists per se. Um, we think of people, figures like Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung, um, who really, in the modern sense of, of, the word, of the term, established psychology as a discipline. Uh, I may be wrong on this, but that's how we understand it. That has really generated a negative, especially from conservative, biblically-based people. The discipline of psychology has really, uh, really got a bad rap, if I could put it like that, because of the basis. Certainly, certainly. I think uh, uh, the, the, there are segments of the Christian community that have really walked away from an entire discipline because they perceive that the discipline is uh, defined by uh, secularists or atheistic ideas. The challenge is psychology is really simply a, a discipline. It's, it's the study of the soul. Uh, those who deny the soul will say it's simply the study of the mind. Uh, but uh, you mentioned Freud and Jung, for example. They're they're, they are working with an anti-supernatural perspective, perceiving that humanity can only be engaged really by uh, sensory and uh, uh, natural uh, empirical means. And, and consequently, uh, they're, they're working with a definition of humanity that does not allow for the soul. Uh, and for anything supernatural. And so because they're the dominating voices in psychology, and, and there are, of course, many others, but because their voices are so powerful and influential, uh, many will perceive psychology as identifying that with those kinds of personalities. Now, the really interesting thing is, historically, uh, uh, prior to maybe the, the 19th century, uh, psychology belonged to the church. Uh, you, see, you see references uh, within the, the Reformation, uh, you know, that era, uh, and, and it was very clear that uh, it was churchmen who really owned and were populating the discipline of psychology. It wasn't until later uh, that uh, uh, some of these popular figures came out with uh, more of a naturalistic approach uh, and had tremendous influence, which I think frightened those with the theological background 
in, in saying, well, we're not scientists, we can't deal with those issues. But the, I, I got news for those folks that what they're doing isn't science either. <laughs> you know, what, uh, uh, what Freud and Jung were doing was, was not scientific in that sense. So, uh, so I, I, I think it's very valuable for Christians to be able to look at what psychology actually is uh, as, as the study of the soul uh, and of the mind. And uh, for those working from a biblical worldview, uh, we believe that God created the human being, and, and no one knows the human soul and human mind better than our creator. In other words, we need to look to him to populate our psychology. And so uh, uh, we don't need to be afraid of engaging the discipline of psychology, we do need to be very cautious about being captivated by the, uh, by the uh, godless premises and practices of, uh, 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 of naturalistic psychology, if that, if that makes any sense. Definitely. Um, it's, it's good that uh, that's why we are so interested in your approach that doesn't reject the discipline. Um, yours and many people who are like-minded. Now, I'm thinking also of Dr. Luther Smith, who's at, still at Calvary University, with that uh, understanding that it is a discipline, and but it's undergirded by a biblical worldview in our, in our case. But someone may ask, uh, behavioral and mainstream psychology has various, say, experimental methodologies uh, and obviously the conclusions will still be different if you're, because this is such a worldview-based discipline. Um, well, as all are, but it, the conclusions are really driven often by that starting point. Right. Are, are there valid experimental methodologies um, that we may sometimes see the mainstream psychologists use that we can learn something from? That is a, that is a great question. Uh, I, I think one way to phrase that or ask that question is, is uh, how do we determine what good practice is? Uh, and I think mm -hmm. within, the con within the context of worldview, uh, ought comes from a good is. Uh, or another way to say that is uh, prescriptions, good prescriptions come from good descriptions. Um, now, at the same time, at the same time, you have uh, thinkers who are, uh, as as uh, I believe it was Newton who said, who are thinking God's thoughts after Him, uh, even though they might be denying God. Uh, you know, if He's if He's revealed Himself in such a way that He's evident throughout His creation and His characteristics can be known, then as I as I uh, think through what has been made and I understand some principles through what has been made, it's certainly possible that even if I'm denying the designer, that I can be blessed by the design. Uh, and I think we see that in lots of, lots of ways. Uh, you know, uh, the, the rain falls on the, the, the just and the unjust alike, right? Uh, and, and, and so... I think we will discover there are techniques and methods uh, that are employed by um, secularists 
uh, who are their motivation is to explain life without God, without acknowledging their designer. And so they may be intending to uh, uh, ignore or deny the design, but yet it's inevitable that that uh, they have to borrow God from God's design in order to be able to uh, function at all. Uh, maybe one one silly example of that is when uh, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, critiques. Uh, metaphysics in general and basically says that there isn't any absolute meaning that we can discern uh, and he goes on to say that we shouldn't be walking in a, a herd morality meaning we shouldn't do what others tell us to do but he's telling us what to do when he's telling us we shouldn't do what we're told to do so so you, you have to borrow these these ideas of logic even to deny the maker of the logic you know <clears throat> and i think that's what's happening in many cases in in counseling uh, methodology is there are some uh, just like in leadership or other disciplines there are some good techniques and tools to utilize in interacting with people that are helpful in a general way, uh, because they're part of how God has designed us. And I think sometimes uh, even people who might deny their creator can certainly identify and benefit from some of those those design uh, ideas. That, that makes sense. Um, thinking of Romans 1 again, uh, as God's attributes are clearly visible in that general revelation sense, um, to all people so uh, that sometimes we may use that term of a blind squirrel also finding in that uh, or that type of thing so I suppose if you think if they, they approach it empirically they work by based on evidence some things will correlate to what is reality uh, or have I that basically so I understand but I think with psychology being such a so-called soft science or such a well I don't I don't know what you think of that term but it's not a laboratory experiment or it's not a, a repeatable it's it's based on people and people are unique and different and uh, and obviously uh, we believe that God has made us and created us in a particular way so uh, there may still be experimental research methods that we can say, see, okay, these people learned this, but they often arrive at conclusions then that may not see the whole picture. So, Certainly. So Certainly. I, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just thinking, then, touching on that, do you think, um, and this is something I wrestle with, um, being a, a pharmacist, and filling specific certain types of prescriptions for patients and just to put a disclaimer out there and Kurt will concur this is not about medical advice or anything this show is not about that but <laughs> I feel please don't to us <laughs> I fill prescriptions for people with specific mental health conditions uh, and uh, how should we as from a biblical perspective understand the role of, uh, say, even medications in treating certain mental health conditions then? 
Well, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, we see a hint of the answer in James uh, 5, where uh, when James is talking about uh, illness, and specifically it's illness related to sin, he, he says to, you know, call the elders and pray. And, and they're also anointing with oil. So there's a physical element. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, uh, as he counsels him, to take wine for his stomach, right? Um, and, and so... Uh, those are just a couple of examples of how uh, there's a, a recognition within the scriptures that h- human beings are uh, physical and deal with physical uh, aspects, uh, ailments, and there are uh, physical ways to deal with those. Uh, there is a need, right? Uh, Paul didn't tell Timothy to pray for his stomach. He told him to drink some wine for his stomach. And, and so because of the way we're designed and then, of course, because of the fall and uh, the, the metaphysic worldview implications of the, of the fall with death and decay, uh, you know, we, we deal with this quite a lot. And, and what, uh, what we discover is that uh, uh, the, the physical and the spiritual do interact in a way that really is is difficult to identify and certainly science can't uncover that um, um, i applaud the efforts i would i would never suggest we should stop trying but we don't have tools to measure spiritual and soulish type things uh, i mean we can do statistics and that type of thing but but when we're talking about the brain we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with chemistry uh, a lot of times um, uh, we're dealing with trauma, sometimes physical trauma, uh, things like that. And, and so uh, you deal with physical problems with uh, um, uh, you know, physical solutions. Um, I, God has designed us that way. And, and so for the same reason, uh, if, uh, you know, if, if uh, one of us has an illness, let's say we have a, a, a cancer that we're having to deal with. Well, of course we'd be in prayer. Of course we'd be taking it to the Lord in prayer. But we'd also understand that it would be irresponsible and poor stewardship for us not to take medical action uh, because it's a it's a physical issue that we're dealing with. Um, and and the brain and the mind uh, uh, can certainly have to deal with the same issues. The challenge is you do start to get into some gray area, no pun intended when we're talking gray matter, but when you start to get into where the, uh, where the spirit and mind, soul connect and intersect, uh, that, is, that, is, uh, <clears throat> that deals more with metaphysical theory, and we don't have any tools to, uh, to, to diagnose or measure, right? <clears throat> yes, and what's, I suppose what can be troubling or concerning when we think about these things is that psychiatry along with psychology in the mainstream and where most psychiatrists and psychologists get trained that's a discipline undergirded with that naturalistic um, materialistic worldview so they will think it's like when you carry a hammer in your hand everything starts to look like a nail and so uh, I'm of the of a personal opinion again the word on worldview show is not a show that does medical advice uh, but I'm of the opinion that often uh, I think it's the wrong to approach to put medications first. Um, but that's my opinion, and it's it's not like I 
can deny someone certain treatments that are prescribed to them, but the uh, what what I'm getting at is that it becomes sort of like a crutch or a, a single-minded approach when okay someone is feeling sad we either diagnose them with depression and so they get antidepressants it's like a one-way street it's never uh which sometimes maybe that's just my perception but i and i, I i'm i'm obviously there are psychologists and psychiatrists out there who try a holistic approach but it feels like medication and this is just coming from an experiential point of view what i see in the pharmacy or whatever i see people get prescriptions for things because that's the condition they have that's that's how you treat it and you have patients coming to the pharmacy and asking you even for specific medications although you cannot necessarily dispense those medications to them without say a prescription but to treat say the this lifestyle based condition or this um, uh, behavioral problem that they are experiencing in their lives and now I want a treatment for it and that's the the interesting challenge we are we have yeah you that's just a, such a critical critical observation that you make i think it's much much easier to say uh, i want to take a pill uh, so that i can feel well-being uh, it's much easier to do that than to spend many many hundreds and thousands of hours in the scriptures and and developing uh, the kind of uh, attitudes and lifestyle and thinking that the Bible prescribes. Uh, and when you have, like you said, those who are dispensing uh, uh, physical solutions to spiritual problems because they don't believe in spiritual problems, it's a misdiagnosis. It's like uh, 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 it's like you, your 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 car is out of alignment, and so you put different size tires uh, on on the you know e each side instead of aligning the vehicle. Uh, I'm just giving one example. It's, so the challenge is uh, really understanding uh, that there is the spiritual. There is uh, something beyond the physical, and uh, the Bible gives many prescriptions. Proverbs is just filled with prescriptions of how to have well-being, and I mean the whole uh, the, the Hebrew concept of shalom, which is throughout the Old Testament of the Hebrew Scriptures, is is uh, is about well-being. When Jesus talks about uh, you know the word blessed in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as he he uses this term uh, makarios. It's it's it can also be, uh, you know, Aristotle uses the term to to uh, mean happy. Uh, so well-being is connected to our Creator says well-being in general. The general principle is that well-being is connected to godliness, uh, and Paul illustrates that in in his epistles and letters. And, um, but there are certainly. Uh, exceptions where where a person is not functioning right, their chemistry isn't right. Uh, you know, there's physical issues that need to be addressed, and you know, we do live in a culture where it's really more about we don't want to help the person get better. Uh, we just want to treat the 
the symptom because if we treat the the cause we won't have a customer now that's a pretty bleak way to look at at, at things but i think uh, we've all been to uh i, I think those in the in the uh, the, the auto industry uh, in, in maintenance that have we've felt like you're not really interested in fixing the problem you just want me to come back uh, and I think the same thing can be true in 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 medicine as well now my focus is I'm obviously not a medical doctor or, and not dispensing medical advice as you mentioned uh, my focus is on understanding how we're designed recognizing that we are we're created by someone who knows us and when he gives us guidance and direction we we start there uh, uh, rather than denying him and 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 trying to find our identity our meaning and our function outside of our creator so in your in that one presentation both of us have seen you had these different categories or different approaches to counseling and one of them and it, i've i mentioned this before to kurt that like when worldviews become close to each other but they're not exactly aligned the friction seems to increase um one of those approaches to counseling that you are because i think in that presentation you covered mainstream and the one that uh sort of combines mainstream but doesn't deny the spiritual and Christian psychology uh, and then nuthetic counseling. That's the one that we want to touch on is how does a biblical approach differ with the nuthetic approach? Or at least from your perspective, where do you think they go wrong? Well, that's a, that's kind of an ironic question because the nuthetic movement changed its name to biblical counseling uh, in the last, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years um and and so it's it's ironic that we're, we're having to really ask that question it's it's an important question uh, because the, the so the newthetic movement was really developed um by jay adams was at the forefront and uh and he was he was working in a time where uh, secularists dominated psychology and uh so rather than go into psychology and address those and correct them biblically, uh, he kind of developed his own model that was very, very much rooted in uh, a behavioristic approach because his theology was reformed, is reformed. And so uh, his hermeneutic, and this is where when you think about worldview, uh, the the hermeneutic is kind of the final piece of epistemology, how you interpret the source of authority. In this case, we're talking about God's word. How do we interpret that? Well, if you use a theological interpretation, you're going to end up in a different place than someone who uses a literal grammatical historical interpretation, which, of course, by the way, as you know, is is uh, is uh, the latter is the one I would hold to uh, strongly. We 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 take God at face value and take his words as he as he uh, communicated them but in the newthetic model uh, it's built on reformed theology which is justified by theological hermeneutics uh, reading the theology into the text and that's uh, uh, acknowledged uh, freely by reformed thinkers 
Um, and, and so, for example, it has very practical impact, such as um, Adams uh, on an article, and I, I don't have the exact reference in front of me at the moment, but uh, uh, on an article uh, authored by him, he, he says you can't, you, you can't tell an unbeliever that Jesus died for them because you really don't know. Uh, well, he's dealing with how you counsel an unbeliever, and basically he's saying a Christian has no, really can't counsel an unbeliever because you can't tell them Jesus died for you. I, I find that absolutely incredible, uh, such a theological statement, which is, is driven by a, a particular uh, Reformed view of a limited atonement. And so that's one example. Another, uh, maybe an overarching idea, is, is the idea that Christians are under the law for their sanctification, which creates for Adams a very behavioristic system. So nuthetic is from a, the Greek word that, that means to uh, reprove. And so nuthetic is built on the idea that uh, in order to uh, change your behavior, you have to be corrected, but it's about changing your behavior. Where well, I would suggest in a in a biblical model, it's not uh, behavioristic at all. In fact, it's more about uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in us, and then he bears the fruit in us, uh, rather than uh, conforming our behavior. Uh, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Uh, and, and so I think Nuthetic, because of theological pre-commitments that's justified with particular hermeneutic methods, it becomes very, very problematic. Okay, I understand. So, Reformed theology, we would disagree with Reformed theology when it comes to sanctification and the law. Um, and I don't have a... My reform, my knowledge of Reformed theology is not very strong in all aspects. And so with sanctification, it becomes sort of blurry to me. Um, how would the... Does it come from that dividing the law into three parts approach and the moral aspect is still applicable to the church and or is applicable to the church and that plays a role in sanctification? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, so here, here's the theological premise. Uh, God never changes. Because God changes, God's law can never change. Okay? I mean, that's it. That's the argument. So, therefore, uh, uh, the Mosaic law cannot be changed. Otherwise, that would reflect a change in God's character, and God doesn't change. Therefore, we have to be under the Mosaic law in some way. So, to justify that theological idea, the hermeneutic is used to say, well, we're not under all of the law but we're certainly under the moral aspect. And, and you have to divide the law into those three sections, which the scriptures never do. Uh, and so uh, even, even someone like uh, John MacArthur, for example, uh, who argues that uh, the gospel takes us back to the law so that we can obey the law through Christ. Uh, and so MacArthur is teaching that we are, as Christians, under the law for sanctification. He's got a very Reformed view of that. Uh, and so the law is, is not completely fulfilled, but 
but believers are under the law for their sanctification. And, and I would suggest that that's exactly why Paul wrote Galatians to combat that view, to say that we're not under law. It's not about works. Uh, it's always about grace and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. That, that's how the sanctification happens. Um, and, and so this is why even within quote-unquote Christian worldview, uh, you can have such great variants. You can have Christian denominations that have such big differences in doctrine and, uh, and understanding. And it really is going back to methodology. Uh, and in this case, uh, we, we draw theological conclusions and we, re we have to justify those by reading those conclusions back into the text. Uh, and that is the Reformed methodology. By the way, it's actually more uh, Catholic methodology that kind of the baggage that was brought over um, and not really dealt with with finality in the Reformation. Uh, but I think Paul's dealing with that in Galatians. Okay, that makes sense then. Um, that one about limited atonement really is striking, uh, especially if you're not big into the reformed, say reformed, you don't have reformed convictions yourself. Um, it, and, and you, this is the first time you're hearing about this and considering say someone is now talking to a counselor and or in that relationship and now someone who has an opportunity to evangelize based on Christ's sacrifice cannot, in, because you say convinced of reformed theology, tell someone in good faith that Christ died for his sins, um, which is really interesting considering that how do we reach, it sort of creates a conundrum or at least a dilemma on how you present the gospel. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you don't believe that Jesus died for everyone, uh, then if you're saying that he did, you, 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 uh, uh, I mean, that's, that's misrepresenting God. And so I think that's a, that's a really significant issue. Uh, I, I, I think that's one of the, one of the very evident uh, uh, weaknesses. And, yeah, because that's really, in terms of the, it becomes quite, evangelism becomes so different. Uh, that's, and uh, this idea of the limited atonement is so sort of just based in a, on a logical system. Uh, in a previous presentation on First John chapter two, which I see, which I've seen that you did, uh, does grace extend to everyone? I think is the title where you right, right. you you worked with uh, that passage that sort of clearly states the opposite that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but those of the whole world. And what's interesting, I think the most, light, one of the biggest light bulb moments with that presentation was that reminding that this is present tense. He is the propitiation. And not, it's not specifically talking about an event, but the person. Right, right. Um, in being reminded of how we understand how someone is saved in, that's how that friction then, we, we both agree that we rely on the authority of Scripture, 
the reformed person and the let's say dispensational person but on those points we disagree so strongly um, and that friction so increases so and another when it comes to the more practical aspects of counseling and this is one that I've been thinking about and don't think I have a, a finite con- fine final conclusion on this because it has implications but again we want to derive our theology from exegesis and leave the unknowns to be unknown to us. Um, But how do we counsel parents who have lost, say, their young children, say, in infancy or young age, to death? Um, This is one that there are various views on. I've heard things from John MacArthur talking about an age of accountability. Um, There are various views, if you believe in say, a type of covenant theology, there are implications. Um, the Catholic understanding, I don't completely understand, but there are various views there, I think. And especially if you hold to something like baptismal regeneration as well, um, it sort of leaves, I think, a lot of unknowns as well to people who hold to those convictions whose children may then not have been baptized yet. But how would you approach this idea of uh, when we counsel parents or talk to parents who've lost their children in infancy? Well, that's obviously a very painful situation. And I've, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful not to have dealt with this situation personally in my own family. Uh, but I have had to uh, uh, counsel and, and seek to encourage those who have have lost uh, children uh, in, in, in infancy, at birth, uh, very, very uh, difficult and painful. And we can choose to uh, to do it based on biblical data, or we can choose to do it based on a wish. Um, and I, I, here, here's my approach with that. Um, the, the Bible does not address the question of what happens to a, a child uh, when they die, um, an infant. Uh, but it provides some information that we can surmise, uh, I, I believe, what, what, uh, what's happening. So, for example, we go back to uh, David and Bathsheba. He, uh, he commits adultery. Uh, he commits a sin worthy of death. David does. And uh, God takes the life of the infant, um, which is quite interesting, by the way. Uh, and uh, when the child dies, David, who's very clear on the concept of resurrection and eternal life, David uh, stops his mourning and tells people that he's, he's no longer mourning because he will go to his child. And he's not talking about death. Uh, so there's an indication there that David has a confidence in, in, in his child being uh, in some proximity to the Lord. Um, we, we also have the interesting example in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about marriage and, and a, a difficult situation of a, uh, you know, an unequally yoked couple or one with a, uh, an unbelieving husband, for example, uh, and in uh, verse 14 it says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. 
uh, and the unbelieving wife sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Well, Paul gives us no explanation of, of what that entails, but it certainly seems to have some, uh, that, that the, a person's relationship, positional relationship with the Lord has impact on their children and their, their spouses. Beyond that, I can't go uh, very far. We also know that uh, if, if a person believes in Jesus, they have eternal life the moment they believe. And the age of accountability concept is really, a, again, it's kind of a reformed concept, uh, not a biblical one at all. In fact, Jesus, I believe, teaches the opposite. Uh, he's, he has these children come to him and says, uh, this is the kind of faith, childlike faith. Uh, and so we, in our own thinking, uh, put a, a, a kind of a, put people in a box saying that they, they have to be at this certain age and capacity to be able to believe in Jesus. Uh, but I don't find any scriptural evidence that an infant uh, has no capacity to believe in Jesus. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm not at all... Uh, uh, a fan of the age of accountability concept because it's not a you know it's not one found in the pages of scripture. Uh, so then there's a fourth aspect. So I've provided three: the example of David, uh, his belief, the the mention of Paul with the children that are holy, uh, the idea of childlike faith as a third, um, and then I think that the, there's there's a, a a fourth aspect, and this is just plain and simple. Uh, and I've asked parents in this situation, uh, do you think that you loved your child more than God loved your child? Mm. And of course, the, the answer to that is no, of, of course, he, he loved my child, uh, loves my child more than I ever could. So then the question is, do I trust him uh, to love my child uh, as only he can? Do I trust him to make whatever decision? And, and it's like we're entrusting our, uh, that child to him. Ironically, he's entrusted the child to us. But, but when a child dies, uh, it's like we, uh, we're unwillingly maybe, but we're entrusting the child with him. Do we trust him? And that's that's kind of the fourth and final question or issue that uh, that at some point we we do have to trust him um, to know what's best and to uh, to uh, believe that he has uh, the, the the best solution, the best uh, outcome for for the child. So all of those things point to, uh, even though we don't have certainty on that, that question, uh, I think we can draw great encouragement uh, from those four biblical contexts. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, very, that's a very good question to ask that in that counseling, in that practical sense of referring back to God and His goodness. Because, uh, and that's sort of where I settled this for myself. Um, as soon as you become a parent, just uh, last time I mentioned our first child was born last year, and um, so you start to think about these things more, and um, you know 
praise God, our daughter is very healthy and doing well. But you can't help but sometimes ponder about these things. And what I've settled on is that God is good. It's more good. He is infinitely more good than I can ever be. And he's more just and more loving and caring. And all of those good aspects are infinitely more with him. And to trust him and in his sovereignty um, sort of has settled the matter for me. Do not then to to leave this, try to limit the speculation at least, and, and trust. I think is the is what I've sort of settled on. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, when uh, when uh, we are facing trial and difficulty, the the solution is to look to our Lord uh, and imagine the heartache and the hopelessness uh, and the despair of those who who are being deceived into a worldview that denies the creator that loves them. And so I think that's, that's one of my motivations for engaging this whole, this whole topic, whether it's in the books or the writings or the teachings that uh, he's provided us this incredible, great, wonderful, joyous news. Um, and, uh, and it's not just a wish, and it's not blind faith. Uh, uh, and my challenge to the, whether it's the secularist uh, or to the one who's adding or interpreting Scripture through their own theological system, my challenge to them is just let God say what he said. Uh, leave room for God and just uh, don't, don't close the door on people. Uh, as they're seeking answers. Now, in terms of more practical aspects to counseling, Kurt, you said you had a few more questions. I think um, I think this is a good opportunity to bring some of those in. Um, so if you would, you can go ahead. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Cohn, I mentioned before that I'd been to the Masters Academy International and we'd gone through these biblical counseling classes. Uh, this is not to bash people, it's just a, an observation and people from all Christian groups, I think, would, would go through it. But you get this sort of a um, a speed run interruption sort of thing that the Calvinistic reformed guys do, you know, especially if they are new to their, um, their new theological system. So I was wondering if... Uh, you were to encounter such a person, what a concise, um, how, or how would you engage this person? Because you're trying to speak, they're interrupting you, and it's so you're a this, so you're a that, you're, a, for example, with this, you're an integrationist then, you're a, a this, you're allowing secularism into the church, so on and, and so forth. So, uh, in having a, a conversation with one of these people about uh, biblical counseling, what's been changed from nuthetic counseling, and in looking at a biblical approach to psychology, how would you um, get this person to just quiet down and think? What would you say to such a person? Well, duct tape works pretty well, I found. <laughs> well, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, 
it's, so there, there's a few, a few things. I, I, I think, first of all, context and setting is really important. Um, uh, generally, I, I find that the most effective ways of communicating, uh, the most effective ways of teaching or impacting someone is when they're teachable and, and when they are uh, willing to listen and learn. Uh, uh, debates generally aren't particularly useful. Um, right. Um, and there are settings where, you know, someone, someone may challenge ideas. And I think those discussions can be very, very helpful. So, uh, uh, when I find myself in, whether it's helping a student wrestle through something or a, a colleague where we're, we're publicly uh, debating on an issue, um, my approach would be to, uh, again, help them examine their worldview. Uh, for example, with the uh, Newthetic, which uh, uh, Newthetic advocates um, uh, have often made accusations uh, that uh, others are integrationist. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with some of those allegations. Uh, when we put something on par with God's word, that is, uh, that is integrating things uh, in, in a way that is not uh, recognizing the authority of Scripture. Uh, the Scripture is to be the lens through which we see everything. Uh, so there's some value to uh, some of the concerns that are raised within that the Newthetic community. However, uh, I, I would want to help uh, the Newthetic advocate to understand that they are integrating their theological system into the scriptures as much as the, uh, the Christian psychologist is integrating uh, uh, some secular ideas into, uh, into the scriptures. They're doing the exact same thing. Uh, one is just doing it with uh, some secular ideas and the other is doing it with some theological ideas, but it's the same offense. And I think helping a person think through their method and, and be able to be transparent about that, I think that's helpful. Um, so that's, I, I think uh, the technique would be, uh, whether it's like Socratic dialogue or kind of deconstructing, um, that's, I think the value uh, that I've found in the worldview chart that, I, uh, that I, I've used in a number of books uh, including the biblical foundations of psychology and counseling. Uh, I don't recall what page I put that on, but uh, there's also on, I think it's page 184, or 185 or 6, uh, I, I did a kind of a compass chart that shows uh, you know, true north is biblical, and then these other approaches are uh, moving away from that and integrating other ideas. So I would want to encourage someone to think through their worldview, and do they really uh, see God as revealed in Scripture as their authority, or do they th see their theological system as their authority? Uh, and I think if they can be honest about that, they might uh, they might be able to consider the implications. So gently helping them examine is kind of the technique I would I would take. Is that it all answer your question, Kurt? That does uh, answer my question. Yes. Um, I was wondering as well, could you maybe share if you've ever had such encounters face to face with people? I mean, not necessarily a, a, 
a speed run person that's just out to destroy everything. You know, they listened to one John MacArthur sermon and now they're out to destroy everyone. But uh, have you had any such encounters with um, other people and you've you've seen the lights come on, so to speak? You've uh, well, God has been working in that person after you've been sharing uh, a, a scriptural point of view rather than a, a theological point of view with them. Oh, most most definitely. Uh, on on many occasions, the the first one I'll give you is myself. <laughs> I uh, when I was uh, president of Tyndale Seminary, we had a counseling department uh, that uh, uh, had a good reputation and was. I thought pretty solid and one of our faculty came up to me one day and said uh, uh, you know you you're so focused on being consistent hermeneutically and we do such a great job of that in the school but our counseling department is just failing miserably with that and I was kind of offended at first I because I, we'd worked really hard to get this developed and and I said that's not true at all I think you're you're misunderstanding what are you seeing and he specifically pointed out uh, some of the Jay Adams stuff that we were utilizing and and I said you know it's been a while since I've I've read his material um, but to address your concern I, I absolutely I'll go back and read and I was just my jaw dropped I, I realized that I had read charitably uh, which we should always do but I you know you, you take the good and leave the bad well I forgot about the bad entirely um, and and so I was, I was basically misrepresenting his teaching, um, and uh, and it wasn't just me. But I, in examining uh, some of these writings against Scripture, I, I just could not, could not support it. And so, uh, I my light went on, so to speak, and we ended up uh, replacing all those courses and rewriting, you know, the whole department uh, with a with a, what we understood to be a biblical model um, uh, that wasn't reading theology into these ideas. And, and you know, I've been through those types of things at different schools and had some debates, or at least soft debates, and dealt with students and practitioners. And, and that's one of the reasons for the, uh, you know, the presentation that you're referring to, to help clarify uh, I was a president of one, one university that had a very reformed and newthetic graduate program and a, uh, what I would understand as a biblical model um, at the undergrad level. And so helping them to think through that together and, uh, and uh, work through some of those issues. So it's been it's a good process. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. That's, uh, it's, it's good to hear of... Um, others experience with such things and just how you uh, saw things differently and changed and you've uh, progressed from from then on scripturally um, I would also like to ask uh, I, I heard a, another preacher uh, dealing with this uh, and uh, he was dealing with the subject of counseling and according to him um, there was a, a time where uh, people were not always in the pastor's office. And when the 20th century came around, all of a sudden people were 
in the in the the pastor's office and he was counseling people and not having pastors were not having as much time to study scripture and prepare for Sunday and Bible study and so on and so forth in their uh, various ministries. Um, what if if you've had any uh, if you've done any study in, in church history, perhaps, or maybe heard from some older generations, uh, what was it like before the 20th century? Are you thinking in, a, in your context in the United States, were people as needy back then of, of the pastor as they, they are now, you know, looking to him all the time to be the, the answer to all their problems and uh, not going to scripture themselves to study and change their the uh, outlook to a more biblical one no yeah that's an excellent question no the uh what we i think what we see is is uh, uh some related processes uh the greater the illiteracy the greater the dependence on uh the experts uh, and the pastoral role, I mean, we go back to Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, uh, you know, the, the pastoral role is pastor and teacher for, uh, for the equipping of the saints to, to the work of service. Uh, uh, biblical literacy uh, was never viewed as just the, the prerogative of the, of the pastor uh, or the leadership of the church. Biblical literacy... Um, was a priority um, really after the Reformation uh, for uh, several hundred years. And the, the shift, uh, uh, I, it's difficult to trace, but when pastors became more uh, focused on uh, uh, proclaiming messages, if you will, rather than teaching scripture, uh, that that dependence is, is certainly promoted because I'm no longer teaching people how to arrive at these things themselves. They have to come and hear me in order to to know how to deal with their problems. Uh, and that is a that is a a great theft on the part of uh, many pastoral leaders stealing uh, biblical literacy from people uh, in the name of biblical literacy. Uh, saying that if you you come and listen to me proclaim messages, um, that's what you need. That's the kind of uh, guidance you need. Instead, I should be teaching them uh, the word. It's Second uh, Timothy two two, right? And trusting these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Yeah. So we've lost. Yes. We we've lost that, and uh, uh, we've got to get it back. Uh, amen. Absolutely. I I agree with everything you've said. There's been a tremendous drop in biblical literacy. I saw it when I started pastoring, and I see it every day, uh, whether it be over over the um, the internet or over the airwaves or just speaking to people in general. Um, I mean, just the other day, uh, you know, just bringing up such things as, as exegetical questions, you know, and, and showing people that they, they can do this themselves. They can sit down and do a Bible study 
this way. They thought it was more for, for a seminary student or and uh, someone lecturing in the classroom. So we've definitely lost uh, biblical literacy. We've definitely lost a, uh, uh, how can I put it? We, we When we sit down to do scripture study, it's more of a, uh, a shallow reading and how do you feel about that? What do you think about that instead of using the normal uh, means of communication in the literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic? Exactly. Exactly. And that that's really the key. And, and that's got to be a great priority. Uh, the responsibility of pastors and teachers biblically is to, uh, to uh, encourage the literacy in the word. Uh, and uh, fathers are to be tr training up their uh, children in the in the discipline and instruction of the of the Lord. Uh, and and uh, you know how how can they do that if they don't know the discipline and instruction of the Lord, right? So, right, we've got some responsibilities that we need to shore up, and we do that by teaching the Word, right, and and walking in it. That's right. Yes, well, those are. My questions, uh, Mornay, I'll hand back over to you if you have anything else to add. Yeah, I've just a few random ones, I think. Um, well, one that sort of touching on psychology and psychologists, a figure who has become quite popular, especially among people who are, we think, I would say normally about the world or, or sort of have, have the essence or at least a semblance of what the, how the world has been designed. The figure has become popular who is a psychologist is uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, and I'm sure you've also heard of him, Dr. Cohn. Um, sure. And he's sort of become quite a celebrity, um, and I think he, do, he does share advice that's on a practical level very helpful, and it's sort of that he, he's so close to understanding, because especially with his, also his opposition to atheism, understanding the necessity of God, but still I feel missing the mark so often uh, and again based on a specific worldview. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, he's kind of working in a discipline, uh, you know, to his credit, he, he is seeing order and design and, uh, and, and recognizes um, that, if you will, natural law demands the you know a designer uh, even though not acknowledging god in a personal sense um and and i think that's a tradition that we can trace to uh, thomas aquinas and and also rene descartes uh, they they both recognized natural law uh and and the guided use of reason as a means whereby we can arrive at truth and so while both of these were theistic guys, um, they Thomas Aquinas kind of laid out that special revelation really isn't necessary for understanding the world around us uh, because of who God is and what his design is and all of that. So I think, uh, uh, you know, I, ha I haven't spent as much time as I would like to uh, listening to and understanding you know some of Jordan Peterson's ideas, but uh, just at first blush, that seems to be the kind of the thinking and tradition that he's coming from. And so, uh, you know, in approaching someone with that, 
I, I would, I would again kind of deconstruct the worldview a little bit and 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 bring it back to if if there's a designer, if there's if there's a blueprint, if there's a design, if there's logical, reasonable ways to handle things, then let's 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 see what the origin or source is. Uh, kind of working backwards. Now that's that's always good to keep in mind because it's become very popular and even a Christian's mind. My, my wife has has both as two of his books, um, but I've always understanding reading those to understand the perspective and to take what is good and spit out the bones type of approach. The sure, sure. from a practical sense, it's a. I think it's been a breath of fresh air in in certain practical aspects for many people, especially in the West, um, in how we should see things or like, a, it's like a, someone shaking someone else awake. Well, that's how it does as a to me, especially with his passionate way of speaking and um, telling people that, you know, you can't change the world if you don't have your own lives in order. Um, I think that is a reminder of, say, how does the biblical qualifications that, for an elder work he has to have his own life in order before he can uh, in terms of not perfect necessarily but uh, I mean uh, talking about how his own household should be managed well because Paul asks that question how can he manage the household of faith the household of God if he doesn't have his own household in order so some of those aspects touch on what really the Bible is getting at but it's like someone is almost there uh, but not there yet you could sort of cheering him on you're almost there dr peterson just a few more steps <laughs> yeah i think you're exactly right he one of the things i appreciate about his approach is he is he certainly seems to be trying to be consistent and recognizing you know the law of non-contradiction and these kinds of he's avoiding absurdity um, but there's some steps that he's not he's not yet willing to take um, and uh, so, you know, to have a conversation with him, it'd be it'd be fun to just see if we could uh, walk with him to take those steps and understand why, you know, what what uh, presuppositions or what uh, uh, emotional responses or um, ideas would keep him from being persuaded uh, to believe in his savior. Yes, because that's always our goal in talking to unbelievers, which should be in our, at least in our minds, to introduce Christ to people. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and for, for, an, uh, for a Christian interacting with a believer, that's the, really the only goal. I mean, we're to do mm-hmm. good to everyone, uh, mm-hmm. Galatians 6, uh, 9, 10 tells us. But uh, at the same time, uh, that part of that doing good is providing them with the best news they could ever uh, receive. So that mm. is a responsibility that we, we do have mm. uh, to keep that before us. Yeah, that's very good. So um, to wrap things up now, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I think we don't have any further questions and we don't want to take up. I have one for you, Monet. Oh, you have one for me? Have you cleaned your room? <laughs> Uh, I couldn't resist. <laughs> you mentioned That's... Jordan Peterson and spoke about him. I couldn't resist. Very appropriate. Very appropriate. Uh, well, I want to hear the answer. Uh, the room is pretty tidy. 
but uh, at least the dishes are washed. <laughs> okay, you're safe for now. Well done. <laughs> it, it can be better. That, let me leave it there. It, it, it can be better. <laughs> this is why you don't invite me over very much. <laughs> no, it's because we live uh, a little bit far apart. So we don't live in the same town. Let's, let's put it that way. Far apart can be far or not so far, depending on one's perspective. I got you. No, I'm, I'm just teasing. I'll, I'll lay off your room. You can keep it how it is. Yeah. Thing is, I don't have I don't have a my room. That's the thing. It's our room in my case. So oh, uh, oh yeah. Can yeah. you tell that I'm single? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Well, uh, Doctor Cohn, thank you very much for joining us. I've really enjoyed it, and I also look forward to uh, studying this topic uh, more and more as the years go by. If Christ uh, delays to return. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I'll encourage you. Um, I don't know if you had seen uh, uh, Luther Smith, Dr. Luther Smith, and I uh, co-edited a, a, a book called Biblical Foundations of Psychology and Counseling, where we're kind of taking that presentation that you, you referred to earlier uh, to a, a little deeper level, dealing with some of these foundational issues. So uh, I hope that can be encouraging and helpful as you, as you wrestle with some of these ideas. I've seen I've I've seen it on social media um, the post for that book. It looks very interesting. I've recently um, I bought and I haven't started really. I've just read the first page or so, but I'm going to get into it. Uh, a book by Dr. Luther Smith called The Majesty and the Menial, um, and which is something very encouraging to read to me because bringing back that focus to those small things, I think it's always helpful for a Christian when you feel burnt out or you feel a lot of pressure, whether it's career-wise or whatever, um, maybe may feel anything, uh, maybe you feel you're not being significant in life, to be reminded of being faithful in those small things. So, Amen. I'm, I'm Amen. definitely going to be on the lookout for, I'll put that on a list somewhere to read in the future, that book co-edited by you and Dr. Luther Smith. It looks very interesting. And, uh, I think it's a, a topic we can, that's so practical because so many people have big questions about life and how to deal with things. Uh, it's something that relates to many people. I think sometimes, and unfortunately it's the case, not everyone necessarily wakes up and thinks of epistemology. Uh, sometimes Kurt and I may do that because we are the yes, hosts we do. of the very esteemed uh, the world word on world worldviews podcast, but but many people wake up in the morning and are deal with things that bother them in their daily lives. They uh, maybe feel depressed or they have conflict to deal with, and so that's what I think makes this so practical and helpful uh, to deal with counselling and psychology and have a to drive people to the scriptures and see that there are answers available. So thanks for joining us to discuss this very helpful topic. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Word on Worldviews podcast. 
the opening and closing music track for this podcast is Noe Land by Kevin McLeod.